Welcome to the Working on Wellbeing podcast by the World Wellbeing Movement. The podcast that allows you to be a fly on the wall during conversations with the world's leading wellbeing experts. I'm your host, Sarah Cunningham, and in today's episode, we'll meet an expert on the science of health, happiness and well-being, whose TEDx talk focusing on the central role that relationships play when it comes to our well-being has been viewed by about 44 million people globally. But before I introduce today's guest, I first want to take a moment to thank our series sponsor, S&P Global. The world's leading organizations rely on S&P Global for the essential intelligence they need to make confident decisions. S&P Global, powering global markets. Now, I'm delighted and honored to welcome today's guest, Dr. Robert Waldinger. Dr. Waldinger is a professor of clinical psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and he is the current director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which is a groundbreaking research project exploring what makes a good life. In fact, that's the name of his co-authored best-selling book, The Good Life which is packed full of wisdoms, insight, and practical tips for what we can all do to improve our own lives. And I think the best way to introduce today's guest is to read a very short extract from this wonderful book. For 80 years and counting, the Harvard study has tracked the same individuals asking thousands of questions and taking hundreds of measurements to find out what really keeps people healthy and happy. Through all the years of studying these lives, one crucial factor stands out for the consistency and power of its ties to physical health, mental health and longevity. Contrary to what many people might think, it's not career achievement or exercise or a healthy diet. Don't get us wrong, these things matter, a lot. But one thing continually demonstrates its broad and enduring importance. Good relationships. Good relationships keep us healthier and happier, period. Dr. Robert Waldinger, you are so welcome. That's great to be here. Well, listen, I'm really excited to dive into some of the compelling insights from your groundbreaking research. But I'd just like to understand the study a little bit more first, because when I think about 84 years worth of data, where a lot of that is with the same human beings for you know most of that time period, I imagine that's remarkably rare. So it would be really helpful if you could tell us a little bit more about exactly what the Harvard Study of Adult Development is and why it was created in the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, as you say, it is remarkably rare. In fact, the founders of the study would be astonished to see that we are still going and we're still studying the same people. Now it's 85 years later. It's So the, the study started in 1938 and it actually was two studies in the beginning at Harvard, studies that didn't know about each other. 
Um, one was a study of Harvard University students, undergraduate students who were 19 years old, chosen by their professors as fine, upstanding young men. And it was meant to be a study of normal development from adolescence into young adulthood. Um, and of course, now we think, well, you know, if you're going to study normal development, you don't just study white males from Harvard. But at that time, that's what they thought they would do. The other study began at Harvard Law School, and it was a study of juvenile delinquency. And it was particularly a study of how some children from really disadvantaged circumstances managed to stay on good paths and thrive despite all the obstacles in their way. So these were young men, boys really, around age 12 from the city of Boston in 1938 from families who were known on average to five social service agencies for problems like domestic violence, uh, parental mental illness, severe physical illness, uh, extreme poverty. And so these were not just poor families. These were really, really troubled families. Um, both of those studies continued. And then my predecessor, the third director of the study, brought the two groups together to study. We brought in their wives and we brought in their children. More than half of the children are women. Um, so we have now almost 3,000 people and we've studied these 724 families for 85 years. Um, I'll say a little more, which is that the reason it's so rare is that most studies that follow people over time end before the 10-year mark because too many people drop out. And so it becomes scientifically not meaningful anymore when so many people drop out to continue to follow the ones who stay. So what we've had is only 22% dropouts in 85 years. That's almost unheard of. That it is unheard of, actually. Uh, and it has to do with the dedication and doggedness of my predecessors. Wow. And I'm really interested because, of course, as a woman um, and as an Irish woman, um, I have a sense of relief hearing that you've included the wives and, uh, and children because it's so important, of course, that these insights are representative of everybody in society. Um, and it strikes me, of course, that, you know, this still sounds like quite an American cohort. And uh, I believe that you also looked at a few other data sets to ensure that your findings are representative of different genders, nas nationalities and ethnicities. Is that right? So what we've done, as you say, is to make sure we look at other studies of more diverse populations and we make sure that if we present a finding, either it's been corroborated in other groups, or we name that. We say, look, this has only been found in this narrow sample of people from the U.S. who are Caucasian. Okay, but you are looking at other groups, which is which is really, really good to hear. And when I read your book, I think there were sort of five or six or seven other studies which certainly comprised more diverse groups uh, of individuals. Absolutely. And the main finding, which you read, you know, to to the listeners, that relationships are important, that has been found all over the world in all 
cultures. Amazing. And I want to dig down on that main finding. But before I do, I find it really interesting. Are you the fourth director? Is that right? Okay. I'm the fourth director. I'm not I'm not so well preserved that I started the study in 1930. Well, I was going to say you're looking terribly good for your age if you, if you were involved that in was, the start. That was well before I was born. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm so interested in how you came to be involved in a study that commenced, as you say, well before you were born. Was there any sort of defining moment along your own career journey that brought you to become the fourth director of such an important study? There was. So my predecessor, George Valiant, was one of my teachers in medical school. He lectured to my medical school class and he lectured about this study. And the men were then, you know, in their 50s and 60s. And I thought, this is the most fascinating thing I can imagine. I never dreamed I would one day become the director of the study. But eventually, uh, George one day took me out to lunch and said, how would you like to inherit the study? Because he had been aware of my research work and thought that I might both be interested and I might have some of the skills needed to do this kind of longitudinal work. So, and, and at first I wasn't sure I wanted to because longitudinal research is really messy. You know, you have to deal with missing data. You have to deal with people who don't respond to your uh, pleas to participate again and again. Um, but once I went to the study offices and I sat down and I read through like two or three family files where you can look at what someone talked about when they were 19 years old and then read what they said about their World War II experiences and then read about their transition into midlife. And it was like, the most gripping thing I had ever seen. And I said, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to devote the rest of my career to doing this. Wow. And, you know, as you say that, I think that was something that I enjoyed so much in the book was that you tell people stories. And I think we all relate, don't we, to people and to people's stories. And it was so wonderful that you started telling somebody's story, as you say, when they were a young person. And then you share. I remember there was one part where you even shared how recollections differ when you get older and you were actually able to go back and corroborate what had really happened 50 years previously. Um, so it's a really wonderfully well-written book as well, I have to say. Um, but I would love to hear in your own words, what are the key findings? And I know we've touched on, of course, the importance of social connection, but um, there's obviously a lot more to it than that. <laughs> yes. Well, certainly one of the key findings, which is no surprise, is that taking care of your health matters a great deal. So that means regular exercise. It means eating well. It means not abusing alcohol or drugs, not smoking. Um, all of those things add years to your life and they add years in which you are disability free, yeah. uh, which is also important. We don't just want to live longer. We want to live healthier as we get older. So those things matter a great deal. Um, we also know that privilege matters. Our Harvard men lived on average 10 years longer than the inner city men. And that undoubtedly has to do with access to healthcare. It undoubtedly has to do with 
the inner city men having harder jobs, often more laboring jobs, um, as opposed to white collar desk jobs, um, and access to health care and access to public health measures. Uh, the, the public health information about the dangers of tobacco and alcoholism reached the Harvard men, we think, sooner than the inner city men. But it, it, and all of this makes a lot of sense. And of course, it, it's so sad, really, when we look at the unequal distribution of income, the unequal distribution, of course, of happiness um, and, and of so many different things. But but social connections really is the nub of this study, isn't it? Yes. And let me say that despite these differences I just mentioned between inner city and Harvard, um, the inner city group was just as happy on average as they went through their lives as the Harvard men. So privilege does not make you happier. And that's very useful to think about. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. Um, a few things struck me when I read it. Um, and one was loneliness. So you describe loneliness in the book as something that people experience as physical pain. Can you talk more about that? Yes. So loneliness is the, that subjective feeling of being less connected to other people than you want to be. What that means you can be lonely in a crowd, right? You can be lonely in a marriage. You can be perfectly content alone on a mountaintop, right? It's a, it's a feeling of wanting more connection than you have. And literally people experience it as more pain, sometimes more physical pain. And we know that people who are not lonely, people who are connected to others, actually weather physical illness better. They, they experience less pain. Um, particularly, they've done studies now of people who are going through a medical procedure that's going to be somewhat painful. If they're holding a loved one's hand, they experience less pain. It's like having a mild anesthetic. So we know that isolation and loneliness um, is associated with more difficulty weathering the normal stresses and pains of life. Wow. Um, and so, of course, that brings us to, you know, social connections and how can we increase our social connections? And I guess many of us, when we think about who are the people in our lives that we build those social connections with, we might think of friends that go back a very long way, maybe to when we were in school or university or maybe the street we grew up in and family. But actually, of course, social connections can be found in many different places. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about some of the unexpected places in life where we can find valuable social connections. Absolutely. They've done research on this, on the question of do, do, do we get benefit only from friendships and loved ones? Turns out that's not true at all, that we get this benefit of, that connections give us when we talk to a stranger. Um, we get the benefit when we chat to the person who makes us our coffee in the coffee shop in the morning or who... Uh, checks us out at the supermarket, you know, uh, that, that these kinds of connections help us feel like we belong. They're pleasant exchanges that give us small hits of well-being. Um, in fact, 
there was a study of commuters in the city of Chicago where they have a long commuter rail system. And, and they, they did a study where they assigned some commuters to talk to strangers. They did this at random and they assigned some commuters to do what they normally do, you know, listen to music, look at their phones, whatever. And they asked people before they completed their assignments, how happy do you think you're going to be doing this? And the people who had to talk to strangers thought they were not going to be very happy. When they asked people after they'd completed their assignments, the people who talked to strangers were much happier on average than the people who had just done what they normally did during their commute, which was kept to themselves. So we know that talking to strangers gives us that sense of well-being, belonging, connection that has health benefits. Wow, it's it's so interesting. But I think we also need to nurture our social connections. It's not something that we can take for granted. And you have a, a methodology that you call social fitness. Can you tell us more about how we can all build our social fitness and why that's so important? Well, the term social fitness came from our our research. What we saw was that the people who were good at this were the people who kept actively maintaining their relationships. So what do I mean by that? It's the people who kept in touch with other people more often, literally who had people over to their homes, who made sure that they they took walks with people, that they had cups of tea with people, that they talked to people on the telephone regularly. And so when we think about, well, how could I do that? I mean, we're all so busy. And if you think, well, you know, they're giving me one more thing I have to do in my life. No way. Well, actually, it's small actions that give us these benefits. So you could, for example, on your commute, make it a point to remember to text a friend to find out how their exam went or how their child is doing, you know, in school. Or you could make it a point to once a week chat to your friend who lives in another city, but who you want to be sure you keep up with. Um, or make sure that you connect with friends um, in person who otherwise you might lose touch with because you're so busy with work and raising a family. Um, I'll tell you in my own life, I've started doing this. My kids are grown now. They, they are not home and they, so they don't pull me away to go drive them to soccer games and do things like that. So now what I've done is made it a point to make sure that I have dinners with my friends and it's really added so much to my life because otherwise I could just work all the time uh, and I could neglect those relationships. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that it's this kind of active tending that we do with our relationships that really makes a difference in keeping our social lives vibrant. And these are such brilliant tips. They really are. Um, I liked your idea of, of bundling 
different parts of your life together. So whilst you're on your commute, texting a friend or, you know, I have to say that when I, you know, I do these small, small group gym classes and a Pilates class. So there's six in my Pilates class and four in my small group gym class. And I'm I'm doing the exercise that, of course, I've got to do, but I'm also doing it in a social way. And it's such a lovely group that I've met. And I've only been in my Pilates class for a few months now, but already getting to to build such strong relationships. Yeah. Well, and you're pointing to something that research has shown to be true, which is, let's say you want to make new connections. So maybe you did this because you recently moved to a new city um, and you don't have enough social connection. Research shows that if we do something alongside other people, something we want to be doing, something we're interested in, that we're more likely to strike up conversations because we have something in common. You know, in your case, it's a Pilates class. It might be a community group working to prevent climate change. It might be a group that loves to go listen to rock music. Could be anything, right? But if we do this with the same people over and over again, we're more likely to strike up conversations. And some of those conversations are likely to deepen into real friendships. Yeah, I, I so couldn't agree. It's a tried and true method. No, it's wonderful. And we had uh, Dr. Kelly Harding on as a guest um, in the last season. I'm sure you you probably know Dr. Kelly Harding, um, but she's also done uh, such wonderful research on the impact of social connections and kindness as well on our health and happiness. And another great way of, of, of bundling that building of new social connections together with doing good is volunteering. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, many of us, encounter social connections all the time uh, in the workplace. Those of us of, of working age spend, I sound like I'm on repeat when I say this, I seem to say it every episode, but most of us spend over a third of our working lives at work. And yet some of us may not actually look at the workplace as an important place to meet people and to build those relationships. Could you talk about some of the benefits on our health, on productivity of having a friend or having friends at work? The benefits are enormous. In fact, the Gallup organization, which is a big research organization, um, did a study of 15 million workers around the globe, all demographics, all ages, all cultures. And they asked the question, do you have a best friend at work? And what they found was that the people who said yes, and that meant do I have someone I could talk to about personal matters at work? The people who said yes were better performers as judged by their supervisors. They were happier at work. They were less likely to get injured on the job. They were less likely to leave their jobs for another opportunity because there were people they wanted to show up for. Yeah. Now, what percentage of those 15 million workers had a friend at work? 30%. And the 70% who didn't have a friend at work, only one in 12 said that they were really engaged in their jobs. 11 out of 12 were sort of quietly checked out of their work lives. So this is so important, not just for the happiness of workers, but for their productivity. You know, many CEOs think that 
friendship at work and socializing at work is a distraction, that it takes away from productivity, but it turns out that it works exactly in the opposite way. Um, that friendship at work enhances well-being and increases productivity. Yeah, and it's quite depressing, isn't it, to hear that only 30% of people in that study felt that they had a best friend at work. And I think all of us can probably do more to get involved in the social aspects of work. Um, but it's more and more difficult because, of course, in, in 85 years, the world of work has changed a lot. But actually, let's be honest, in three years, the world of work right. has changed a lot, right? Um, and a lot more people now are working either fully remote or, or many are working hybrid and often working in geographically disparate teams. So we are reliant on all forms of technology. I mean, this call now is a Zoom call, um, but, you know, Zoom, Teams, etc., to build those relationships. Do you have any tips for how to nurture social connections at work when you are working in a, a, a disparate fashion? Yes. Well, it's such an important issue and many people are asking this question now, how are we going to nurture relationships remotely? Um, and it has to be much more actively structured. So I'll give an example. The U.S. Surgeon General, his name is Vivek Murthy, and he's taken on loneliness as the core issue that he wants to work on. Usually, Surgeon Generals take on, you know, smoking or obesity. Or, he took on loneliness. And one of the things he does in his staff meetings um, on Zoom during the pandemic the first five to 10 minutes of a staff meeting, one staff member would take turns sharing something about their personal life. It could be a challenge, but it could also be a fun hobby. It could be anything. People loved it. The staff just, that was their favorite part of the meeting. And what it did was it spurred a lot more offline conversations. Like, oh, I didn't realize you were interested in that as well. Um, or I didn't realize you were having to deal with that challenge at home. So am I. And so, but it took active structuring. And I think that what we're going to find is that if we want to do that kind of connecting through remote platforms, we are going to have to be more proactive because social disconnection is accelerated, unfortunately, by remote work. Um, and what we do know, there's a, there's a psychologist named Jean Twenge who does research on how we use the digital world. And what she finds is that if we just passively uh, use like social media, our well-being is lowered and our rates of depression and anxiety are higher. But if we actively connect with each other, um, our well-being goes up. So it is possible to use remote work and other ways of using digital platforms if we're more proactive about connecting with each other personally using those platforms. Yeah, and I think for me, it, I've certainly benefited so much from just having the small talk and you know, in, in the last company I worked for, I got to know so many people while I was making my cup of tea in the, in the kitchen. And, and as yeah. you say, that's something we need to replace. But 
many of us, and we know this, many of us suffer from unconscious biases. One of those plethora of unconscious biases is the affinity bias. And that means that we tend to be drawn to people who are perhaps similar to us. And of course, what you're talking about is discovering that we have wonderful things in common with people that we might not realize. Um, and I, I adore finding out that perhaps there's somebody I'm working with who might be, you know, 20 years younger than me or from a completely different country or different background. And we both share this this love of whatever it might be. At the moment, for me, Reformer Pilates is the thing I'm enjoying, but it could be I love art, I love hiking. And just discovering those connections really broadens our horizons so much. And, you know, you can even do it on, on Zoom. Yeah. So you can, for example, you could notice something that someone has in their background if it's not a rook, if it's not a fake background, or even if it's a fake background, you can say, oh, how did you choose that one, right? Or, you know, are you really in San Francisco at the Golden Gate Bridge when, of course, you're usually not, but, um, you know, and you can just start a conversation that way, a, a more personal conversation. Yeah, so we all need to talk to each other more and ask questions and, and get to know our colleagues because it's a rich source of, of social connection. But it's all yeah. sounding terribly idyllic, isn't it? So social <laughs> connections enrich our lives and we can all build our social fitness. But anybody who has ever had a disagreement with a colleague or who's found themselves bickering with a partner or a friend or battling with a sibling or a parent does know that some degree of conflict is inevitable in social relationships. So what is your advice for navigating the inevitable conflict that will at some point arise when it comes to social relationships? Absolutely. Um, and, and we don't want to give the impression that relationships have to be all smooth and happy to get these benefits. They don't. That the real challenge, since conflict is inevitable, the challenge is how do we negotiate conflicts so we both emerge feeling okay, right? It doesn't mean we get what we want all the time. It usually means we have to compromise, but can we emerge feeling okay about each other? Um, so what we found, we, we did a study of couples where we asked couples to come into our lab and to have an argument with each other and we videotaped it. And, well, you know, they argued about the things they usually argue about. You know, we asked them to tell us, you know, pick a topic like housework or time with friends or childcare. And the couples got right into it. Like they forgot about the video cameras and they just went right down the rabbit hole and they argued. And then we had people, raters, come and watch the videotapes and rate them for emotion expression. We thought that the degree of anger was going to predict which couples were going to break up and which couples were not, and which couples were going to be happy five years later. It wasn't the degree of anger. It was whether you could see affection and respect expressed in the couple, even when they were having an argument. So the question is, is there a way when we're having a disagreement with someone that we can find what we respect about that person and convey it, that we can find what we like about that person and still convey the liking, even when we're disagreeing. Because if we do that, then we both emerge 
feeling not disrespected and feeling not like one person has won and the other one lost, but like, okay, we respect each other and we disagree and we move on. That's fascinating. Um, and I, I think it's something that that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, one of the things, and I've shared this before, that really helps me day to day is every evening my husband and I will tell each other three things that we're grateful for that day. Ooh. I know a lot of people journal that. We do it as a verbal way. I think it helps us to connect. We are not a perfect couple, though. I could not be more grateful and I could not love my husband more. But of course we bicker. I think most couples do. But actually, even if we've had a day where we might have been bickering a bit, that moment of what are we grateful for really helps us. So it's really interesting to hear it's in the research as well. Well, and the research shows that gratitude is a huge um, uh, factor in relationships and in their health. Um, the reason is that our minds are biased toward what's wrong. And, and we think that we evolved that way because it's good to see what's wrong out on the horizon, to know how to anticipate that. But um, what we find is if we call to mind what's right, what we're grateful for, that it counteracts that negative bias that our minds naturally have. And so what you're doing with your husband is calling to mind what's not wrong, what's right. And it counters that bias to pay attention to what's negative. Absolutely. Now, in your book, you share your wiser model. Um, do you want to talk a little bit through what the wiser model is and how it can help us. Well, I can do that. I mean, it takes a little while. Um, if you want me to do it, is, I will. is there a shorthand version of it? <laughs> can you give well, us the elevator yes. pitch? So, yeah. So the wiser model is really just a way of slowing things down. So we're always presented with things that we don't understand. So let's say my boss sends me an email that says, I want to see you first thing in the morning. And that's all my boss says. Well, my mind could go wild with the possibilities. I'm going to get fired or I'm in trouble in some way or he's going to give me extra work, right? So the wiser model is just a way of slowing it down and saying, okay, wait a minute. Let's just watch and see, okay, what's happening here? Has Have I ever gotten this kind of email before? And what were the circumstances then? Have... um. How might I understand what's going on? Maybe the company's having some changes and my boss wants to talk about that. Maybe it's not that I'm in trouble. You know, so it's basically slowing things down rather than panicking or rather than immediately getting offended when someone says something that seems disrespectful. So you watch you interpret what's going on, you think of multiple possibilities, then you decide how to respond. So rather than avoiding my boss's email and pretending I didn't get it, or an angry response like, I don't have time tomorrow morning, select the response that might be the, the most helpful, the most adaptive, and then engage with the person who sent me the email. And then see how it works out and reflect back on it. So it's basically just a way to break things down into their component parts, slow things down so you don't jump to conclusions. Because many times we jump to conclusions, particularly when we're given 
a stimulus that's unclear and our mind tries to fill in the blanks. So yes. that's what the wiser model does for us. And I think that models like that are so important. We had um, Professor Ethan Cross, who you may well know, on oh, yeah. a previous episode. He's author yeah. of the wonderful book, book Chatter. And I think we're all aware of the fact that, you know, we have rational thoughts and we have this automatic behavior where our inner self-critic or inner negative voice can take over. Very often, that can be all the more often in um, a written situation. So you talk about an email in work. Of course, when you get an email, you don't have the tone of voice. You don't have the body language, which adds all of these extra layers of understanding. And it is so easy to misinterpret an email. So when you give that example, I think it's such a great idea to have a tool that can remind us just hold on and pause and reflect and just re-engaging that, that, that rational brain before storming into, into a reply. Yes. And to your point about email and text, another tip I've had to learn is talk to the person. Talk to the person in person or at least get them on the phone. Hear their voice. Let them hear your voice. Because Email and text are so easy to misinterpret, as you say. You know, I actually did my own bit of research on this. I recently completed a, a master's degree in LSE in psychological and behavioral science. And I ran a, an A-B experiment, a randomized control trial, where I presented um, a panel of respondents with some fictitious emails from a manager. And then I presented another group with some voicemails um, saying the exact same thing. And of course, even though you don't have body language and even though a voicemail isn't real time, the, the chances for negative interpretation were lower. And this came down to less ambiguity. So I have a top tip, which is why don't we start sending voice messages? Because of course, sometimes you'll be dealing with a colleague in a different time zone. So you can't simply pick up the phone and talk in real time, but that could be a tip on occasion. I love that tip. That's fantastic. Amazing. Um, this is where research can really be useful to people, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So let's say we've had a stressful day at work. And we come home, it might be to our flatmates, it might be to our parents, it might be to, by, to our partner or children, and everybody's situation is different. But there's the spillover effect, isn't there? When you've had a stressful day at work, you end up taking it out, maybe with the people you live with. Have you any tips to overcome that? Yes, absolutely. Again, slow it down. So if you are leaving work and you notice that you're upset or you're agitated, Find a way to give yourself a little bit of time to calm down. Um, you know, let the people at home know you're just going to take a brief walk or you're just going to do, you know, you're going to take a little break before you come home. Or if you have to go right home, let everybody know, you know, I've had a hard day at work. I'm just going to take a few minutes to, um, to chill out and then I want to find out how your day is. But to let people know so that so that you don't just engage with the people at home in an irritable way, because people are going to think they did something wrong. They're going to assume they're the problem. And so just letting people know that you've had a hard day can go a long way toward preventing that kind of spillover that we find often happens from work to home. So we've talked about 
how idyllic this all sounds, but actually, of course, there is inevitable conflict in social relationships. And the reality is we're also all different. Some of us are introverts. Some of us are extroverts. That's a spectrum. Some of us are ambiverts or somewhere on that spectrum. Um, do you have any advice for perhaps people listening who might consider themselves introverts as to what they can do or how this research can help them? It's really important that we talk about this, that in fact, introverts are just as healthy as extroverts. Um, they just need fewer people. Introverts get their energy from alone time and extroverts get their energy from other people. And as you say, many of us have both introvert aspects and extrovert aspects to our personalities, but introverts don't need as many people in their lives. And so it's up to each of us to check in with ourselves and say, do I have the people I need in my life? And if not, what do I need more of? Maybe what do I need less of? It's a very personal matter. Like what we find in our study is that everybody needs at least one or two relationships where they feel like you'd be there for me if I really needed help. We need, we need at least somebody like that in the world. But beyond that, it's highly individual how many people we need in our lives. So there's no set number that's right for everybody. And it's an individual matter that we can each discern for ourselves. I think this is so reassuring for many listeners. There is no one size fits all. This is individual preference. And I think all of us probably have a sense ourselves, as you said earlier, you can be lonely in a crowd um, and you can be fulfilled sitting on a mountaintop, I think you said, by yourself. Yeah. And we will probably have a gut feeling as to whether we need to work harder on building that social fitness muscle. Yep, exactly. Well, I think now would be a great time to move to the rapid fire round, um, which is my favorite round because it's really quick top of mind answers. So the first question is, if you had a time machine and you could travel 30 years into the future, what is the change that you would like to see in the world? I would like to see more support for children and the people who care for children, because that's by far the best investment we make in the future. And that's what I would really like to see happen. And what about if you could get back in the time machine and travel back and give advice to your 18-year-old self? What would you tell that young man? I would tell myself, to pay attention to my gut and pay attention to my to what lights me up, what energizes me and what drains me of energy. Rather than worrying about what other people think is important, what other people think is the right thing to do, just follow my heart because that when I have followed my heart, it has never led me astray. And when I have followed what other people want me to do, I've often not been happy. There's a, there's a great quote from Joseph Campbell. He once said, 
if the path before you is clear, you're probably on somebody else's path. So that's what I would have told my younger self. Wow. I mean, that's incredible advice. And when I think about how much time I could have saved, and I'm sure most of our listeners could have saved, not worrying what other people think, my goodness. Um, And as you say, following what gives us a sense of purpose, what energizes us. So very important. See, you've given such great advice to our listeners, but what's the best advice that you've ever received? It was, when in doubt about whether to show up for people, show up. So if you're in doubt, well, that person may not want to see me or, oh, I probably would be out of place if I went to that funeral or if I went to that gathering. And the best advice I got was, if you're thinking about whether or not to show up for people, show up. That's really good advice. That's really good advice. What do you wish you had learned sooner? Hmm. I wish I had learned sooner that most of the things I worry about don't matter and that the really important things are about people and purpose. Um, so all the trappings of achievement and that stuff, that all you know, that all passes and fades away, but the people don't fade away. Uh, the people in my life and the purposes in my life, the things I really value, those don't fade away. And so to try to hold on to those things. Well, I mean, I could not think of a better piece of advice than that. And I think that's a wonderful place to end a fascinating interview. And just to say a huge thank you, Dr. Robert Waldinger, for sharing such wonderful insights with us. Well, this has been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, me too. Well, thank you so much.